I hope you have your Bibles with you, and if you do, you should open them up. We're going to go to Nehemiah, the last part of Nehemiah, and it feels a little bit this morning like we may be the, I may be the only pastor of the only church in America that's not doing a Father's Day sermon on Father's Day, but you know that was true for us on Mother's Day too, so at least I'm being consistent. We're going to uh, read from our final text out of the book of Nehemiah this morning, Nehemiah chapter 13. We're going to read in verses 23 through the very end of the book. We will have um, uh, one more sermon from Nehemiah in which uh, I uh, make some attempts at trying to tie everything together, kind of bring some conclusion and remind us of some overarching themes that were true throughout the book of Nehemiah. Uh, So uh, we're looking at the the end of, of this study of the book of Nehemiah. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, I've enjoyed studying it. Nehemiah has always been one of my favorite books uh, out of the Old Testament. Certainly, it's probably my favorite book in the Old Testament. Uh, and out of the entire scripture, it's one of my favorite books still. Uh, so let's read Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 23 through the end of the book, uh, verse 31. Nehemiah writes this, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, excuse me, therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for for the wood offering at appointed times and for the firstfruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Father, it's your text. We come to you this morning inviting you to teach us from your word by your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you have been so faithful and that you always will be faithful. When we open our ears to you, when we turn our eyes to you, when we uh, fix our mind upon you, you are always faithful and illuminating to us what you want us to see and to know from you and about us. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. As I said, this is the final of the, uh, what I've called the three concluding uh, parts of, and actually give the same name uh, to each of my sermons here, Remember Me, O My God, because it is Nehemiah's appeal as he is closing out his, uh, his writings of what he did or what happened through him at Jerusalem. He's, he's sort of reinforcing or bringing back to the forefront the things that he puts up at the top of the list as to what, was, uh, what, what God was working through him. 
And I said this last week, uh, reminding us that he was a, not just a religious leader, but he was a political leader. And this week, we're going we're gonna to kind of come back again and say, I want to remind you again, he's not just a political leader, he's a religious leader. And he is, in, in many ways, he is looking at the things that in his mind, or for, by God's leading, are, the, are what is holding the people of Israel uh, captive or bondage, or is keeping them from really being who they're supposed to be as God's chosen people. And many of those things, and this is why you see the three things in, in, in conclusion here, many of those things revolve around the corporate worship of the people of God. So, uh, you know, as we went into the study, we talked about how to apply it, and we talked about we could apply it individually and as families and as churches and even as a nation, quite frankly. And all those do apply. But primarily in conclusion here, Nehemiah is returning to the fact that this is the, the, the people of God and the things that they're supposed to be doing together as the people of God are, are, are we're, we're losing track of. And that's why he saw uh, how they weren't, be, they weren't taking care of the temple anymore. The Levites weren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. And he saw how they were working on the Sabbath, and that's not what was supposed to be happening. And, they, and, the, and as a whole, the Sabbath was not being kept among the people. And then today we come to this text, and he says, here's something else that I noticed. And this is very interesting. Again, for most of us, uh, many of us, maybe we kind of, I don't know if you scratch your head when you read things like this and you say, what was the big deal? He says, in those days I saw that the Jews, I saw those Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And when they did that, he says some things about the, the, them, but the, the, their children, they were growing up in, in sort of mixed culture homes and their languages and, and all these things. And you wonder, what's, what's, what's up with this? And just like last week, I can take you to two places right away and show you that without question, they were uh, walking away from what God had asked of them to do. First of all, let's go back to the book of Deuteronomy. When God established his laws for the nation of Israel, he just said it quite plainly. Uh, now, in the first verse of, of Deuteronomy chapter 7, it, it names some nations. And then it says, as it goes through in verse 3 and 4, it says, You shall not intermarry with them. Talking to the people of Israel. You shall not intermarry with them. You shouldn't give your daughters to their sons, or you should not take their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And I think uh, it's interesting to me, uh, perhaps uh, it, we're in a culture today, again, where perhaps this kind of stuff comes to the forefront, where before many, many times we would read things like this and just sort of like, yeah, we kind of understand, we kind of move on. But we're living in a, in a culture today here in, in our country where uh, uh, just about everywhere you turn, everything you see or everything you hear about has to do with race and, and, and racism and all kinds of things. So... You know, I didn't really think about this or didn't really plan for this, but I was sitting at my desk this week reading this, and I thought, you know, it, it's kind of interesting that uh, God makes it very clear that uh, he tells his people, you know, there's people from the other nations, you should not get married to them. And maybe at first glance, if we were, uh, were, were, were sucked into our culture or we're, were getting cues from our culture, we might be tempted to accuse God of being a racist, and I just want to make sure you understand this morning, God is not racist. I can tell you what God is. God is, if I use this term, he is a, he is sinist. He's a sinist, right? Like, he's against sin. He's not against other races. He's against sin. And he gives his reason right up front when he says you should not marry them. He says, I'll tell you why you shouldn't, because they're going to they're gonna drag you away from the worship of me. They're going to cause you to sin. 
They're going to cause you to disobey the very first commandment that I have given you, which is, what is it? What? You shall have no other gods before me. And he said, I'm telling you right up front that when you want to look at the cultures around you and the way people do things, it wasn't that he was against that culture per se or that race per se or those people per se. It was that they had by their demonstration shown themselves to be opposite to who he is. And he said, if you will intermarry with them, if you will give your daughters to them and you will take their daughters for your sons and you'll, and you'll begin to try to, and we know how this works, right? Because we want to be nice to people, usually. Most of us try to, at least, most of the time. Which means that, when, that we, we take things and we say, oh, well, we can work things out. We can, we can give some grace. We can compromise on some things. And in many cases, compromise is, is a pretty good course of action as we live through life. But I can tell you in some things, compromise is a very bad idea. There are some things we are not supposed to compromise. I'd suggest to us that a very big struggle of our lives is trying to figure out which ones of those things are which that we can compromise on and those things that we cannot compromise on. And God said, I don't want you to intermingle. I don't want you to intermarry. By the way, God also made it very clear that if they were to choose to come and join them and worship as they do and become an Israelite, basically, then he's perfectly okay with that. But he says, if you do that, then they will turn your sons away from following me and serve other gods. They will begin to violate the first commandment. Now, the other thing I want to point out to you before we go on uh, today is to remind you that this, again, not just is something that was spoken way back when God said things through Moses, and they were going to look back at their writings and say, well, yeah, way long ago they said that, but that's kind of outdated. This was something that just recently in their past, they had, through reading the Bible, had, through reading the Scriptures, had, had understood that they were in error and they made a covenant. Remember, we covered this, chapters 8, 9, 10. They made a covenant and they said, here's some things we're going to stop doing. And among those, guess what? If you go back just a couple of chapters, Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 30, they said, we are going to stop giving our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Because they understood that what God had told them, he told them for a reason. They began to look at their history, which is something that Nehemiah is going to do here in a little bit, is to point out some history. But they began to look at their history and say, we're not going to do this anymore. So once again, you can understand Nehemiah's frustration when he leaves the land and goes back to the king, to King Artaxerxes. And after some time, he comes back. And as he's on his way through, he begins to realize that on these borderlands, that there was once again we see this intermarriage of, of, uh, of nations, of cultures. And I'm sure he saw right along with it the beginnings of pulling away from what God had taught them to do. In fact, I suggest to you that he actually saw all these things happening together. He saw the things we just read about the last three sections. He saw that as they're intermarrying, and maybe you can work them backwards, as they're intermarrying, as there's influence coming in, and they're not being strict about what they can or can't compromise, no, they're not being discerning about what that should be, and as they're beginning to lose other things like their Sabbath rest, and they're letting those other nations come into Jerusalem and buy and sell, and they're participating, and they don't want to be left behind, and as they're doing those things, and they're beginning to slip on who's in the temple, and, and what's allowed in the temple, and what gets done in the temple, and the Levites begin to kind of go back uh, into their, the, the, to their other land and say, we've got to live somehow, so we're going to go back and, and, and follow 
farm and do whatever else we were doing because we're not being taken care of anymore. He sees all those things tied together and says, this is exactly why we're in the place we are in and we should not go back on that, which is why you see some of the drastic action that he took. He said, I'm not going to stand for it. Now, before I go, uh, uh, before I, uh, go on there, it, it gives some indication that this is not happening necessarily or completely in Jerusalem, but it is in those borderlands, that, uh, as, which makes sense, right? Because those are the places that are sort of, they're, they're outlying, and, and there's not as much attention there. And, there's, and it's a lot easier to say, well, Jerusalem says this, but Jerusalem's pretty far away. But... Nehemiah takes some pretty strong action, right? What does he do? What does he do? I think last week it came out of my mouth. I said, I'm not sure Nehemiah was a very good Mennonite. And this week, we read the same thing, right? I confronted them. By the way, in all three of these things that Nehemiah talks about, he uses the same word every time. I didn't like what was happening in the temple, so I confronted them. I didn't like what was happening with the Sabbath, so I confronted them. I didn't like what was happening with the intermarriage, so I confronted them. And I cursed them. And I beat some of them. And I pulled out their hair. By the way, the phrase there, pulled out their hair, could indicate cut their hair. If you think about a few other scenes in Old Testament history where they were trying to shame people, and they did exactly that. They cut them. They made baldness. Uh, happen. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they, he yanked it out of their head, although I don't know, it doesn't preclude that either. It could have been exactly that. But he took in some, some pretty direct action, right? I think we should read in this the, the frustration level, if I can put it that way, or the, the level at which Nehemiah was reacting to just how he thought, this cannot be. This cannot be. Everything on the slow, and again, he, he's, he's aware of their history, but on the slow, like the first exiles come back, and they're trying to reestablish the altar, and then the temple, and then more come back, and then they're trying to get, and they're scrimping, and they're scrounging, and they're, they're, they're defending themselves against all this and, uh, opposition, and they're, they're having to band together, and he's having to rally them, and, and they achieve this great work, and they have this, this culminating moment where they're all together in the square, and they're, they're reading the Word of God, and they're worshiping publicly and, and for the first time the nation of Israel celebrates the, the feast of booths and all this stuff and then he leaves and he comes back and he sees that some of the things that were the reasons for why they were in the position they were in before Zerubbabel ever came back are beginning to happen again. By the way, he is being entirely biblical, though I can make quips about being Mennonite or not. He's being entirely biblical. Proverbs says this, a wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. Now, those are both references to harvesting or to, uh, to uh, get the good stuff, get the bad stuff out and the good stuff in. If you know what winnowing is and driving the wheel. Driving the wheel refers to uh, moving the big stone wheel over the heads of grain to crush them and get the chaff loose so that you can winnow them and get rid of the chaff, which is the good, the not good part, the wicked part, and keep back what's good. In other words, if you want your grain at the end of the harvest season, you have to uh, provide some, some muscle. You have to do some work to get it out. In fact, you might suggest if you were, if you were the grain itself, you might say that it goes through some, some difficult things, some, uh, some uh, harshness or some, uh, uh, some pressure. And a wise king does that, is what Proverbs says. And Nehemiah here, I remind you, is acting as the king. He's acting in, that, in the leadership 
there, there's, there, I, there's lots of things we learned about leadership, and here's another one of those. I actually didn't turn it into that, but I, I could have. I probably should have now that I think about it. It takes some action. By the way, he's also not alone. Now, this happened after Nehemiah, but he's still not alone because it's still uh, scriptural. Jesus himself used some pretty strong language about things that uh, are not what they should be. If you hear his words in Matthew 5, 29, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, you should tear it out and throw it away. Right? My point this morning isn't whether Nehemiah was Mennonite or not. My point is, did he respond biblically to things that were happening that should not be? And are we willing to respond biblically to things that are happening when they should not be? I can assure you, in my own life, and I'm reasonably confident in the lives of those I see around me, very, very few of us respond with this kind of attitude towards things that are in our lives that should not be. Most of us make as much effort as we can at justifying little things. And I want to be, I mean, you know I say this all the time, right? I'm up here just I'm speaking, but I'm in the benches with you as, when it comes to application. But I think particularly uh, over the last year or so, it's become very obvious to me that we are also just a lot happier um, driving the wheel over other people and not letting it run over ourselves, if, I, if you know what I mean by that. You see, the Proverbs verse I read talks about the man in leadership and being, uh, being strong in recognizing that when things aren't like they should be, that, that there needs to be a separation, a winnowing out, a, a getting rid of the chaff. That needs to happen. But Jesus' phrase here actually is not about other things, right? It doesn't say if your neighbor's eye offends you, you should tear it out. It says if your eye causes you to sin, you should pluck your own eye out. Of course, Jesus told things like, you know, why are you trying to get the speck out of your brother's eye when you have a beam in your own that reinforces the same kind of thinking? Nevertheless, I think we want to understand that Nehemiah is entirely within his, within his uh, biblical rights to respond very strongly against something that was being done that was very clearly said it should not have been being done. And again, he says... Can I have, do I have to take you back again in history? And he picks and he goes to the man that would have been top of the list in Israel's. Well, there'd been a few a little higher, but pretty high up on the list of people that they knew God had, God had put, set up in a position. And that was the man, King Solomon, David's own son. Let me just read to you this morning uh, from 1 Kings because it, it, it says it just as well. I mean, Nehemiah re, uh, reminds us of it, but 1 Kings uh, gives it in full. This is what 1 Kings chapter 11 says, the first eight verses. Now Solomon, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, and names for those foreign women, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which, with the, from the, nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. By the way, these numbers almost like are mind-blowing. We can't even quite fathom them. And his wives turned away his heart. 
For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place. So it just started with little things, but at the end of this tells us that he went far beyond just his own little personal things. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives. How many did he have? So he did for all of his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. This is the easiest answer you're going to give all morning. So if you want to talk out loud in church and give an answer, here's the, here's the one you want to answer. Does God know what he's talking about? Yes. Are you sure about that? Does God know what he's talking about? So when God says things in his word that he wants his people to do, what should we do? Does God know what he's talking about? When he says, you shouldn't do this because this is what's going to happen, should we presume to say, well, that might happen for other people, but it won't for me? No. This is why Nehemiah confronts them. And by the way, I made a reference that maybe was happening sort of out there in the borderlands, but he does mention one clear case that happened right in the middle of Jerusalem, Right? Right to the very top, it says that this, one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib the high priest, was married to Sanballat the Horonite's daughter. And if you remember from the book of Nehemiah, Sanballat actually shows up a few times, right? Because he's one of those guys who is not in favor of the rebuilding project. By the way, there are, I said this, I think, at the very beginning when we opened up the book of, uh, well, maybe it was when we first talked about Sanballat, I'm not sure, but there are extra-biblical historical sources. So not, not, nothing to do with the, the Bible, nothing to do with Christian people, actually, even. Just extra-biblical, like other cultures' historical records that refer to a man named Sambalat who was the uh, prince of an area called Samaria during the time of Nehemiah's life. So we know from extra-biblical historical sources that this man existed. And it gives you a clue as to why he did not want the Wall of Jerusalem built. Because he was the prince, he was over the area of, of land of area just north of where we're talking about, in Samaria. Formerly Israel, by the way, but because of the first wave of exiles with the Israelites, had been brought in with other people. He was a, he was a Horonite, and so he was the man in charge. And his daughter, now, by the way, if you know anything about world history at all, you know why they did things like this, why they offered their daughters in marriage to the, to the sons of, of the leader over here. Right? Because they were establishing, uh, they were establishing friendships and, and, and keeping peace and, and saying, I'm going to get an ally out of this. They were making political alliances. But as God well knew that the political alliance would also carry with it theological implications. Boy, that's still true today, isn't it? The people, and I don't mean on a nation level, by the way. The people that we align ourselves with whether we think it's for theological reasons or not, still have theological implications. I hope you think that through. Nehemiah saw that this was happening. By the way, um, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, again, not, not biblical, uh, but a Jewish historian, he says that this man that he's referring to here, his name was Manasseh. 
He was one of the sons of Eliashib, not the one that got in the next one, Order of the High Priest. You can read about the Order of the High Priest, by the way, in chapter 12. Uh, but he was one of his sons. And what, what, uh, what, uh, what uh, uh, Nehemiah does is he chases him out. He chases him out. I'm just realizing I've missed the verse that I, I should have put in there. We'll get to it in a little bit. He chases this guy out. Josephus, by the way, would go on and tell us in his books of history, if you go back and read Josephus, that this man Manasseh went to his father-in-law Sambalat in Samaria, and with his father Sambalat's uh, help, financial help, he built a temple on Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim is in, uh, in Samaria, in the land of Samaria, in northern, what is northern Israel. And uh, if you follow at all through this stream of thought, you can recognize that this temple was built. This was a man who was a Jewish priest, well, the son of a Jewish priest. He was in the priestly family, and he goes over here, and he builds a temple and begins to establish worship. Now, fast forward a number of years. I'm just going to skip over this verse for sake of time. Fast forward a number of years, and Jesus is going through the land of Samaria and finds this woman at a well and has this conversation with her, and this woman says this. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, I just pulled one quote out because the story, of course, Jesus and the Samaritan woman is about a lot more than that. I just want you to see that this is the connection I'm making. This was a man who married a woman he should not have. And when Nehemiah confronted him and chased him out, he said, I'm going to do what I want to anyway. And he built a temple and began to worship the Lord according to his plan and his way in Mount Gerizim, which is the place that she's referring to many years later with confusion and saying, hey, I was taught that we worship God here, but you guys say you worship God down there. By the way, do you know what Jesus responded to her? This is probably more important for a New Testament believer than anything else. What did Jesus respond to her? Do you know what he said? Yeah, God is a spirit, and the day is coming, in fact, is here now, that he is not looking for those who worship here or there, but he's for those, looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. A line you often hear coming from us up here on a Sunday morning, our desire is to worship God in spirit and in truth, but we know God's Holy Spirit dwells in us. Well, let me uh, bring this all the way down. If you want to look up the reference I went over, you can look up in your handout. It's just referring to pulling out hairs. So if you're enthused with that idea, you can... Now I said it, right? So you, I wanted you to see the progression that went from when Ezra discovered, if you read the book of Ezra, by the way, Ezra discovered that there was intermarriage and he pulled his own hair out. Did you know that? He pulled his own hair out. I'm not sure what changed or how it changed or I don't know what, uh, but, it, but when Nehemiah discovered, he didn't pull his own hair out, he pulled their hair out. But anyway, in all of this, Nehemiah says, remember me, oh my God, for good. Third time this phrase has come out, and each time I want you to see the progression. Each time, Nehemiah gets less and less specific, and more and more throwing himself upon the mercy and the goodness of God. The first time, he was very specific. He said, remember me, God, for what I've done in the service of the temple and the very specific things. Not last week, I mentioned that he didn't mention that anymore, but he was still giving some, some indication. He said, God, remember me and spare me, cover over me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. And today, he's left with the only cry any of us are left with in the end. I tried to convey this a bit last week. Remember me, God, for good. God, you look at me and remember me for good. I am at your mercy. I tell you the same thing I told you last week, church, brothers and sisters. 
We are to work as hard as we can to be obedient and to be fruitful and to, uh, to do what God has asked us to do. No question about that at all. We work as hard as we can. In the end, when it all is said and done, we must recognize that us and Nehemiah and every single other person alive on the globe or ever has been alive on the globe is in the left in the same position. God, you have to remember me for good. You have to, you have to cover over me. That's what the phrase we used last week. Your mercy has to be present in my life. It is, after all, the mercy of God that sent Jesus, right? We want God to remember, but we want to remember specific things. The psalmist wrote these words, and this is also a song, and so we know these words, maybe better than sometimes, out of Scripture. Remember not the sins of my youth. Don't remember those, God, or my transgressions according to your steadfast love, but remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. It seems the older I get, and maybe it makes sense because the sins of my youth were in my youth and I probably was less aware of them than I ought to have been, but the older I get, the more I realize how true this verse is and how much I want it to be true. God, don't remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions, but remember me for the sake of your goodness. We don't have time this morning, but I was struck as I was reading through the book of Ezekiel just once again struck how God made it so very clear that when he brought about the second covenant, when he brought about, actually when he brought about the, the return of the exiles of Israel and he brought about the second covenant because he's alluding to that, when he brings that about, he's doing it for the sake of his name. He makes it so obvious to us. Though we are arrogant and bullheaded and full of ourselves, he makes it so obvious to us that the goodness we receive, the mercy we receive, the salvation we receive is because God is good and it's for the sake of his name and to elevate who he is and to bring glory to him. It's not because of us. Not because of our goodness. Not because of what we've done. And truly in God's goodness, he did remember us, didn't he? We look back today. This is looking forward. We look back today. Let me read these words to you, words that should be precious to us from the book of John. John chapter 1. The true light, this is God's goodness for you and I, friends. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. And then we have verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This, I can tell you, unequivocally is your greatest need because you were created in God's image to have relationship with him. So for you to be a son or a daughter of God is your greatest need. And what I just read to you is God out of his goodness meeting that need. The true light of the world, Jesus Christ came into the world. Though the world was made through him and by him and for him, the world rejected him. But to all those, and that's you and I sitting here this morning, if we're so willing, to all those who will receive him, who will believe in his name, he will make you son and daughters of God. Not born of our, of human decision or of flesh as it says, but of God.
born of God. I have no other words other than to beg of you to consider whether those words apply to you or not. Whether you have received or accepted or believed in Jesus, the one that was being sent. And I invite you, no matter how great you may think you are and how much good you may think you have done, I invite you this morning to bring yourself to the same place as Nehemiah and to say, God, all I have left to say is that you would remember me for good. Father, we are so grateful for this book of Nehemiah. We're so grateful for your teaching of us. We're so grateful for the way the message of the Bible comes through and is always pointing to Jesus, always pointing to Jesus. doesn't matter if we're in the Old Testament looking ahead, if we're in the New Testament looking back, always pointing to Jesus. And we ourselves this morning want to orient ourselves, want to point, as it were, excuse me, want to point, as it were, ourselves to Jesus this morning as well. And we would fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter, the beginner and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame and is now sitting at your right hand, God. We want to fix our eyes on him so that we may walk faithfully through this journey. We may not give in to sin. We may lay aside those things that hinder us, the sin that so easily creeps into our lives. We may lay that aside and run with endurance the race that you have set before us. We point ourselves, we look to Jesus Christ for your word is always pointing and looking to Jesus Christ. It is in fact the, the way, God, that you have remembered us for our good. You've sent Jesus Christ. And not only, and not only do, you, do we recognize this morning that that's true, but we lay down everything else, every other means that we might have to make ourselves right with you, every other effort that we have made Every other belief we've had, every other thought we've had, every other lie we've had about ourselves that is not true, that has, has made us think that we bring something to the table, we lay that aside, we cast it aside, and we say, God, we throw ourselves upon Jesus, for he is my only hope. We rest in what you have done, Jesus Christ. And then, Father, if we're going to say those words... If, they're gonna, if we're going to mean those words, if they're going to come out of our mouths, if they're going to be in our hearts, if they're going to be in our brains, if they're going to be the intent of what we want, then we must pay attention to those things that we have been learning in this book, and not just in this book of Nehemiah, but in the book of the Bible. We must pay attention to the leadership. We must surrender to the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we can truly turn away from those things that ought not to be in our lives. Root them out. Allow you to separate us from them. Winnow them from us. Drive your wheel over us if need be, Father, that we might be found holy and pure and right when Christ returns. We don't say that lightly, God, for we know we know that Jesus Christ endured to the point of bleeding. 
And as Hebrews there, as I was quoting from earlier, would go right on to say that we have not yet resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. We're not anywhere close to that yet, Father. Help us, O oh God. Remember us for good. Pour your grace out in our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.